Here's the setup. Some bad guys with life sentence criminal convictions have a combined skill set that is perfect for a daring mission behind enemy lines in a Nazi-controlled compound. Now, you might be yelling at the podcast that we've already watched The Dirty Dozen. You gave it three and a half papier-mâché maps or something. But your concern is misplaced. Today's episode is about a different film that actually came out in 1964, three years before The Dirty Dozen. It is, as one reviewer called it, the sawn-off antecedent of The Dirty Dozen. They're different in execution. The films diverge drastically on character development, coherence of plan, and the presence of Lee Marvin. Today's film also lands our anti-heroes in a Nazi jail about halfway through, serving up a nice irony that the Dirty Dozen never encountered. But clearly, there was something in the water in the mid-60s that was causing audiences to want to see allied bad guys get one over on even battered German bad guys. A war film, at its best, can deliver us a distillate of human nature. These are stories about what people do when confronted with the most dire of circumstances. But this film's characters are hardened criminals, inherently unsympathetic and well aware of their expendability. Even the major that puts the team together is expendable. It's a team of specialists like Force 10 from Navarone, but even more fatalistic. The challenges they face are as perilous as any war film, but the stakes are changed because we're taught to treat them with suspicion. The director, Roger Corman, is a living legend among film nerds. He gave early work opportunities to many luminaries of the industry. Coppola, Scorsese, Cameron, Howard, Demi, Bogdanovich, just to name a few. He got his start directing just nine years before the release of today's film after trying to work his way up from the mailroom at 20th Century Fox and quitting because they didn't give him credit when they started using his ideas. Corman's legend is much more about quantity than quality, but he's had some bangers. And one side effect of the throw shit at the wall and see what sticks approach to filmmaking is that you occasionally get out in front of a good idea before everyone else. I think that's the case with today's film, which really diverges from his usual work, most of which are extremely campy films like Death Race 2000 and Battle Beyond the Stars, neither of which are on our list, so don't ask. And while Corbin's schlock is the stuff of Hollywood legend, he's also the stuff of Hollywood legend full stop. It's as much our mission as yours now. Today on Friendly Fire, The Secret Invasion. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that is glad we have this chance to pay society back for all the trouble we've caused it. I'm Ben Harrison. In gratitude, I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Zero gratitude over here. You never did nothing for me, America. <laughs> How much Roger Corman do you guys have in your, uh, in your movie-watching histories? I have read more about Corman like as a film studies person than I have watched him, which uh, at the end of this film felt like a huge mistake 
uh, <laughs> I want to watch more Roger Corman films for uh, reasons I, I know we'll get to throughout this conversation. But uh, yeah, it's interesting to read about how many other filmmakers learned at his knee, too. Yeah, like, absolutely. Many, 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 many other filmmakers uh, were like grips and shit on Roger Corman Productions and then went on to be Marty Scorsese. Right. There's a, a pretty a pretty impressive list of, of people that came out of the, the Corman Film Studies program. Right. You know, I know the name. I'm so familiar with the name that I started scanning the movies he's done saying, surely I've seen a Roger uh-huh. Corman film. And as I'm reading <laughs> down and it's like, the giant bug-faced monster from outer space. Uh-huh. And then it's the 30-foot girl made of lizards. And, the, and I'm like, okay, I haven't seen any of these. And I, and I keep going and it's like, oh, sometimes he would make two movies back-to-back just because Craft Services was still there. And it felt like, you know, they had all that food. Why waste it? And uh, and I was like, okay, that's weird, but sure. And then I was like, and then he went into production and he's made 700 films. I've never seen a single one of them. And I never read it of all the titles of them. I was like, I don't want to. I seriously, I'm seriously not interested in the, like the man that lives in the sewers. No, no, don't get nasty, my little friend. Your puppy is not going to hurt you one bit. Oh, and he was celebrated by Cahiers de Cinema, and he was, <laughs> you know, given the the Croix de Guerre and, and paraded through the streets of Paris on the back of an elephant. And I'm like, that makes me not want to watch his movies even more. I wonder why a guy like Corman with his filmography is given Corman style credit versus a guy like Ed Wood, who, I mean, sort of has a similar quality of films, is like reviled and made fun of. And I think it may take watching a lot more Roger Corman movies to answer that question, but it's strange how how filmmakers with some of these similarities you know, they don't all live on the same street in terms of reputation. Ben, have you seen them? Have you have you seen a lot of Roger Corman films in your NYU days? Uh, no, he was not considered. Uh, as far as I know, like nobody was nobody was pushing him on me. Certainly, I mean, uh, that may be the the classes I took or whatever. But I took a whole a whole semester long class on Hollywood auteurs and it was just a different like important sixties and seventies Hollywood director every week. And uh, he did not come up, you know, (laughs) like Sam Peckinpah came up, but not, uh, but not Roger Corman. And I think that um, the DNA of the like Roger Corman production style is in a ton of stuff that I've seen and a ton of stuff that I love, you know, like he he seemed almost like intentionally interested in, in like making schlocky stuff. And this is a kind of uncharacteristically mainstream film. Like the, the movie mm-hmm. had a budget double the highest budget film he had directed previously, I think. And you know, it was it was also uh, an experience that convinced him that he didn't want to do anything, anything further with mainstream studios because they, you know, wanted to water down the characters. The uh, apparently the guy that the ragtag team of criminals was meant to rescue initially was a nuclear physicist. <laughs> and the, the idea was that he was going to be the person who, you know, 
he knew this the the last little bit of information that the manhattan project was going to need to finish the bomb and the studio was like so the so when the good guys win at the end they unleash nuclear war (laughs) 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 and so they made him change it and uh and i got the sense that he didn't take very kindly to that (laughs) this felt while watching it like the production of a filmmaker who had been given a little more money than they're used to. And I feel like you can really see it on the screen. Some of the choices that were made about, I mean, location being one of them, but also like this, this movie looks really good. It looks a lot better than I expected. Uh, Like really thoughtfully composed scenes of war like cliffside war where you see these territorial views of of dubrovnik like i was not expecting that to be where the thought went in this thing i I expected it to be well if we can afford one more tank to blow up we should procure that tank but uh, instead i feel like there was a lot of careful attention given to like a tiny guillotine on a guy's desk or (laughs) any number of other like really fine details i i appreciated throughout boy i thought for sure that guillotine was coming down on the forger's finger right right yeah that was uh chekhov's guillotine for sure <laughs> i mean that we've never watched a movie that opens with a credit sequence quite like this like uh-huh. <laughs> the, the the screen is black and then it opens on <laughs> For a full, like, straight five minutes of, like, just war sound effects and phosphorus shells blowing up and people going over the top and getting machine gunned. Yeah. Not not really stuff that had much to do with the film that followed. (laughs) Nope. Nope. Zero. Zero to do with it. Zero to do with it. Like, someone went to a stock footage library of war films and were like, well, I guess we got to make a credit sequence. Let's see what we can do. (laughs) And I was thinking, this movie's called The Secret Invasion, but this does not seem like a secret. What's happening here? This seems like a tank battle. It's allowed to be a secret. It's it's happening between two armies. Um, But I definitely felt like... uh, uh, I turned to my to my movie watching partner and said, "Well, this is a war movie." Uh, you know, in the beginning, we're in Cairo, and I can't remember watching many movies where we see Cairo from the air the way we do in this film, like sort of banking around. Yeah, that seemed like it was probably file footage because it it seemed to be of a very different quality than the rest of the movie. Yeah, there was a lot of file footage that was that was kind of almost. Um, like National Geographic stuff. Yeah. I just loved the way the guys all show up in Cairo via Mm -hmm. different conveyances. Like it doesn't really like add anything to the story, but it is just fun and cool to see like one shows up on a boat, one's on a train, one's in an airplane. (laughs) The guy in the car remind me of his name. Roberto Rocca. When we're introduced to him, we don't see all of his hands when he's smoking a cigarette until I think it's the second inhalation when we see he's in handcuffs. Yeah. That is such a fun reveal. What's amazing about the guy that that arrives in uh that arrives via train is I was trying to think of where you could start a train trip that would end in Cairo. <laughs> <laughs> 
you get the feeling that uh, that Major Richard Mace booked all of this travel, and he wasn't very good at booking <laughs> travel for himself or anyone else. <laughs> With the very expensive differences that all of these mm-hmm. people had in in their transit. Mickey Rooney shows up, and he's pissed that he didn't get the sky miles that he was looking to earn for this. <laughs> we get, like, the Murdoch scene from Rambo, where we get... The gang's resume is being read right back to them. Born 7647, Bowie, Arizona, of Indian German descent. It's a hell of a combination. I was so excited by that when the camera, <laughs> when they were lined up in the office, and then you look over and you see those file folders just yep. tantalizing sitting on the edge of the desk, and you're like, read the <laughs> files, read the <laughs> files. You know what's coming. <laughs> We're going to know every one of these guys very well. Which one's the explosives expert? Which one's the master of disguise? <laughs> Mickey Rooney in this scene uh, really, I feel like, rope-a-dopes the viewer here because his comment is so efficiently cutting. And you're like, oh, this is going to be not a broad Ricky M- Mickey Rooney in this film. It's going to be like quippy tight like interesting Mickey Rooney? No way. He is as broad as broad can be for the rest of the runtime. This is a lie for him this this first scene. Did you guys read that Mickey Rooney is rumored to have actually written the script of this film? What? I did not know that. In a like a biography of Mickey Rooney, it says that he actually like he actually wrote it despite not receiving the the credit. And that is a fantasy for for me to just sit back and think like what was that like roger corman and mickey rooney working out the beats of a script wow <laughs> and i love that like if that's true like the part he wrote for himself is is <laughs> is, is more satisfying in a way yeah yeah the, the casting of it is so crazy i mean mickey rooney mickey rooney was the biggest star in hollywood 20 years before this and Ed Burns was like the biggest teeny bopper Fonzie TV star of the time. Super big star. And Stuart Granger was. John, I just want to say you're not going to see Henry Silva's poster <laughs> on any teenagers. Wall, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Henry Silva, just at the beginning of a brilliant career playing psychopaths. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're going to have concerns about your kids if you find a, a Silva on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> but like Ralph Vallone is yeah. a huge star in Italy and he was amazing in this movie. But like, where did so he great. come from? Why did we never see him again? Right. Like, why is Ralph Vallone not in every picture from this moment forward? He's incredible. Apparently, his name was the top of the poster when they, you know, distributed the film to Europe, which makes a lot of sense. Like you can, yeah. this is a movie that you can kind of like pitch to a different audiences as different things and not be lying. I mean, he's absolutely the star of the movie, which surprised me given how little I knew about him going in. He's yeah. got the he's got the best role, you know. His his like file folder is the best one. Agrees in psychology. Classic Greek literature, structural engineering. Strange that a man would choose to throw away his education planning crimes. I found it a challenging career. He's basically Batman without the, like, fighting (laughs) crime, you know? (laughs) This movie does an interesting thing between Mace and Roca, which makes them equivalent almost immediately. Like, Mace is so permissive. 
and like cool teaching them right up front that you never fear any kind of of ordering around or drill sergeanting that you typically get from a you know assembly of criminals in order to to do a mission type of movie that you get like the, he's not holding the reins tightly at all and that allows Roka to to creep into that vacuum and be kind of the alpha of this thing there's almost no training montage like dirty dozen makes such a big deal of we need like these guys are are crazy and totally unhinged so we need to like work really hard to like make them into a team that's because there's no time ben there is no time in this movie for anything the pace is so fast we get a training montage where we get a scary henry silva face to to the major as as live ammunition is being shot at him this may be the scariest part of the movie. They just gave them like unloaded rifles and sent them to scramble around on some rocks <laughs> at the beach for one night and yeah. shot guns at them while they were doing it. And that was their training. <laughs> if you think about the payoff for the training sequence at the end of the movie, like there is no there or not, not the training sequence. But if you think about the payoff of reading all their dossiers of compiling this list of master criminals from around the world. Really, Mickey Rooney is the only one like like Roca takes over the mission. So it's clear that they picked the right guy, the right like mm-hmm. uh, architect. Right. But uh, Mickey Rooney like makes bombs throughout the movie. So it's obvious that you needed the bomb guy. But the master of disguise and the forger and the and the stone cold killer. I mean, the master of disguise and the forger, they both come into play only at the very, very last scene. And it's a completely, or like the penultimate scene, I guess. And it's a, it's, it's completely ridiculous. The guy forges a document with a potato and that's how they get out through the gate. And that's why he's on this whole mission for the one, for the one potato stamp. I don't understand why that guy, <laughs> I was keeping track of time code throughout this film because I just thought its pace was hilarious to me. 10 minutes into the film, he's already jumped off of that boat and he's like rowing away. <laughs> like we barely know him. <laughs> I also love that they just don't even go close in on the document when he stamps it with the potato because it obviously yeah. didn't work. Yeah, it looks like shit. <laughs> they didn't do a second take of it even. It was like, wow, that looks terrible. Oh, on, they, didn't, they only had one copy of that s- secret document, you know? That was the but problem. But also, the secret document was just, they just had to stop. They had to stop while the Master of Disguise spoke like really badly dubbed German at the, <laughs> at, like, the Yugoslav gatekeeper guy and in the end he didn't even accept the document the guy just you know he said something quizzical to him because there are no subtitles in this movie so he said something you know like oh i think that uh, these are not the droids you're looking for or whatever and uh and they, they walk through the gate and then they're immediately fired upon so right what kind of prison were they in before this prison because it seems like no prison could hold these guys <laughs> Also, why wasn't the plan just get arrested from the beginning? Like, why the, like, elaborate tunneling under the under the wall scheme when obviously the thing that they need to do is get into the compound and you never want to be arrested, though, Ben, that's that's plan B. Because they because they all had to have that really like not very effective and not very bad torture that they all had to endure. (laughs) 
The one guy got got punched a bunch of times, and then someone else got tickled, I guess. They bring in Henry Silva's character post-quote-unquote torture, and he doesn't have a scratch on him as the mind torture. That was a great moment in this movie. They were just like, hey, what happened to that baby? Can you tell us what happened to the baby? (laughs) That baby thing was awful, and I honestly, I felt like the movie did not earn it, right? The movie did not earn killing a baby. Yeah, it wasn't the last episode of MASH. (laughs) Right, like... (laughs) To be fair, we see the baby smothered twice. Uh, Once by uh, (laughs) Mia's breast, and then the second time by Oh, yeah. That was pretty progressive. I thought so. Pretty progressive to have a breastfeeding scene in this movie. Also, this movie didn't really earn that, but... Uh, there's a moment of pet entry about the breastfeeding scene. Oh, breastfeeding pedant, finally. A breastfeeding pedant should be on an FBI watch list. <laughs> well, uh, sign me up because there's a short close-up of the baby breastfeeding. However, the mother's shirt is a different color in design from the other shots. Oh, it was a, some kind of nursemaid. It was a stunt boob. I love it Like when you're Henry Silva and you only have one expression... When he looks over at the breastfeeding happening, it doesn't look gross or bad because that's the only expression that Henry Silva throws. Like it's not it's not like lecherous or weird. He's he's just like staring down like, "Oh, you're going to do that? Riding shotgun on the cart?" All right. He has always been such a such a, a curious movie star to me because he's, you know, he's so restrained. You are waiting for that explosion. At least I was. Yeah. Like he's it's just a coiled spring. The killing he does in this movie is just like the killing everybody else does. He just kills some people, kills them. He doesn't he never does like some crazy except for killing the baby. He never kills anybody in a crazy way. He never he's not like the stone cold murderer. I mean, if he was like truly a psychopath, I don't think he would like be that performatively upset, you know? I guess it was supposed to be like this is the we've seen his humanity now. I just feel like that's another thing that the movie didn't earn because it never established his lack of humanity other than yeah. the other characters saying he's really a killer. You can tell by looking at him. I found the assassination of fake Quadri at the end to be like a suitable explosion, though, in thinking about it. Like he gets pretty big and loud in that moment. Before he goes suicide by Italian army. <laughs> he does, but every one of the every one of the the characters dies by basically like self-sacrifice. Right? Yeah. Like, I'm gonna stand in front of these bullets while you guys get away. Each one does it. When Fell catches a grenade and takes it off the cliff with him, I've never even thought about that being a type of way a person dies in a war film. It was incredible. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You know, like, let the grenade bounce off the cliff and fall as it was going to. You don't have to grab it and, like, tuck and roll with it. But (laughs) but that was a great special effect because he grabs it, jumps off the cliff, and you you basically see a man falling off a cliff holding a grenade, and then it blows up, and it's a continuous shot. Yeah, you see him go all the way down. And then you see a half bob, but it's the wrong half. It is. It's the bottom half of a half bob. It's a bob half, is what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's a friendly fire 
T-shirt. It's it's one of those uh, stickers, you know, when you when you go to a place and you put, write your name on the "Hello, my name is" sticker. Uh, it says mm-hmm. Bob Half <laughs> underneath. It's <laughs> the Friendly Fire logo. Takes so much longer to explain than <laughs> even the premise of this podcast, which yep. takes a long time to explain. <laughs> All our T-shirt ideas are terrible. <laughs> I uh, encountered a pretty amazing to me fact as i was watching this movie i i was perusing the uh the imdb page and the wikipedia uh this film had made some deal with the yugoslav military to um to you know use troops and tanks and things and uh and that deal fell through because of an earthquake that happened in yugoslavia and the the military was like retasked to help with the relief effort but that earthquake uh, in 1963 killed my aunt. What? She was in Yugoslavia at the time of this production and died in a hotel that collapsed. That is the last place I expected that story to end. <laughs> I know, right? It was so weird to like, I was watching this movie just thinking it was a dumb movie for Friendly Fire. And then like it had this like totally insane connection to my family. Wow. That like... Yeah, it was like 300 miles away from where the film was shot, but... In Skopje. Yeah, in Skopje. And uh, my parents were able to go visit her grave just last year because uh, they... Whoa. And that was the first time my father had ever been able to get over there. Was that his sister? Yeah. His big sister was was there then. I just recently learned that an uncle died by catching a grenade and jumping off a cliff. So, <laughs> this movie has a special meaning to me too. I bet it does. Forgive me if I'm wrong about this, John, but don't you have a a cousin who took a grappling hook to the face at some point? <laughs> yeah, that you, that was. I mean, it was just a thing that used to happen to my family. Kind of weird. The number of grappling hooks that like pierced our cheeks and uh, and killed us just just generation after generation. It's in our coat of arms. You know, those things aren't toys. It, it's amazing that the Rodericks are still around, given what a plague that was for such a long time. <laughs> well, I'll take that risk. You'll take it without me. I have to say that that ending, where the mission is over, only one man survives. He was the best guy. He's in an officer's uniform of a nation whose language he speaks. And we know... You know, that there's two years left to the war, but that that he's now, you know, he's in what will soon be liberated Yugoslavia. It's such an exciting end to a movie. Just imagining what Roberto Roca does now. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. just watching him walk down those stairs, throw that gun down and the credits roll. And it's like, start the movie now. I want to see, <laughs> I want to see Roca like go up to the corner and dis- make a decision whether to turn right or left. And who's the next person he talks to? What's the next decision he makes? Like, where does he go from here? I, I love that. It was the, it was honestly not only maybe my favorite part of the movie, but like it was the thing about this movie that sparked my imagination the most. And we see it every once in a while, a, a movie that ends with, you know, a lo- lone survivor Although not true of the movie Lone Survivor, mm. but you know to be to be like behind the lines or something and have two Hershey bars and a and some nylons and a pack of condoms and a forty five 
and just be like, now what do you do? I kind of wish that I ever had that happen to me. (laughs) It's such a great realization of the potential of this film. And it's such a great choice in tone because this isn't like the somber moment that you get at the end of many war films where like you get the incredible Hulk piano theme after Roca closes Durrell's eyes and you aren't sure if he's going to be okay after like there's a visual language here too like we pop up and we shoot wide and Roca's walking down these stairs and the entire world is out in front of him all of his choices are ready to be made he's we've been told and we've been proven throughout the film that he's the most skilled one of the team I mean, of course, we see we feel like the sadness of all of his all of his other guys dying. But there's also this hope that you're talking about, John, of like all of these these future choices that he can make. It's it's a triumphant ending. I bet he throws that gun down, not because he's done with killing and done with war, but he throws it down out of frustration as he thinks, God, I wish I had just had Simon Fell make me. One document that says that I'm a colonel in the, <laughs> yeah. like one, if he had just stamped that potato on one more piece of paper and now I would have. He goes through Fell's bob half trying to like <laughs> see if there's any pockets with <laughs> any paperwork inside. Yeah. Surely there's somebody's <laughs> ID card or something. The first thing somebody's going to ask me is for an ID card. Fuck. Yeah. It's a move that like feels dangerously close to that like can't wait for the sequel moment that you, you feel like some movies end with that almost always turns me off. This seems to be pregnant with possibility at the end without feeling like I was just misled into watching this so that they could have me come back for the sequel. Yeah, yeah it's definitely a, a it's a version of we have no idea how to end this movie. It did feel, I don't know, hopeful and cool. And I'm, I'm still waiting for Force 10 from The Secret Invasion. i wonder if one of the reasons why we feel the way we do at the end of this film is because there's no time to really sit in the grief of any one character's death because they fall so quickly you know we aren't given the intimacy of death in this film i guess maybe outside of roca who we get like we get right in on his face when his eyes are closed I don't think this movie ever established a single reason to like any of these people other than Roca. Yeah. He's like such a chill dad. He never yells at anybody. <laughs> Everybody respects him just because he says the right thing and he knows what he's doing. You really do like him. I don't yeah. I didn't like anybody else. The the only thing that any of them ever did that was heroic was die at the end. And so it was like, oh, oh look at that. Like Simon Fell uh put himself in front of a bullet. Like, oh, I guess he wasn't like a complete reprobate. <laughs> I kind of kind of glad he died. Like it's better than having him be out in the world. Like I'd, I'd rather he not survive this war. Guy's a shit. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, it's also like I mean the end is so messy in so many ways. Like the twist ending of this was a body double. Like is so far out of left field. <laughs> but then like, but it also kind of found a way to like they found a way to make that satisfying. Like. Like when when we meet that Italian general, like we've been talking about this guy the entire time, like the whole movie is building up to rescuing this Italian general. And then he's just this like guy in a (laughs) fucking uniform. He's like an utter disappointment. 
You mean my job was to be in jail for you until these guys spring me out? That mission kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. But then, but then it, like, him being a body devil is like, yeah, like, we're back in this weird movie. <laughs> that, was a, that was a pretty inspired piece of writing at the end when they figured out a way to, like, wait a minute, but what if we just shoot what if we just shoot him but in our german uniforms and that'll be enough like he doesn't have to give his speech that pays off henry silva's character so well because he dies several times in this film emotionally and you know that he's like he's running on borrowed time for the last half hour of this film that by that in the moment he decides to assassinate the fake quadri it's like he already died with Mila in that field. It feels right and just that he's the one to to do it the way that he does. Feels like one of those suicide mission plans where there's no guarantee that's going to work. Uh-huh. <laughs> he he shoots the Italian general and all the you know, and then he's shot from five different places. But there's no. It's really the speech then that Roca makes. Yeah. That turns the tide I, I love how pregnant the moment is after silva shoots quadri he's like standing up on the wall and then he's like i guess i'm like you guys aren't getting it i guess i'm gonna <laughs> hail hitler a couple of times until you shoot me <laughs> like he's got to he really needs to emphasize his point yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it took me so long to remember how i know and love henry silva until i realized he's ghost dog henry silva do you guys like that movie yeah it's i do like that movie i love ghost dog every movie i've ever seen uh with him in it he just has a face that you just don't see it just a face like that never appears and so when you see it you're like whoa where what planet is he from i think it's a really beautiful face it's almost like impossibly symmetrical i think is the thing that really gets me is like it looks like a math face like mathematically created i feel like any movie that he appears in that where the characters do not go whoa look at (laughs) you you look really like somebody dangerous uh i I think isn't being honest like you can't have this guy walk into the room and not have everybody drop their drinking glasses can you imagine reading for a role and you walk into like where where everyone's waiting to go in for their audition and Henry Silva's there, you're like, well, I mean, I I know who I'd pick. I've got this face and he's got that. What a career this guy's had. Yeah, he's been in like so many movies and so many bad movies, but he's always good, you know? Like whenever you see him, he's good. Yeah. How was he not in Die Hard? That's my question. Wow. What the hell? Missed opportunity. What did you guys think of the effects work in this movie? I think there are a couple of pretty large set pieces. You know, in the beginning, when you see that boat explode behind two inches of Vaseline on the lens, you're like, well, buckle up. Like, this is going to be that kind of movie. (laughs) And it totally takes a left turn into, into practical actionville where things feel incredibly dangerous all that rooftop stuff uh on the on those clay shingled rooftops felt exciting and dangerous all the cliffside stuff 
felt the same. It didn't feel as cheap as its budget uh, by any means, I thought. The, the problem with that, though, is that the internal geographical logic of all of those scenes did not exist. Like yeah. the scenes where the Germans are running around, the German troops are running around inside the prison and it's just, we just get a shot of the same nine guys in, in Nazi outfits running down a hall and then we get the same shot in reverse and then we see them running down the same hall and it's really not clear where they're going or why they're running. You know, there's no, yeah. it's not like there's an alarm sounding or anything. And, and it's the same is true with those, that rooftop battle. It's super, super exciting and, and incredible panorama of, of Dubrovnik while they're fighting. But if you try to put, if you try to draw a map where you're like, the Germans are here <laughs> and our stars are here and they're shooting across this distance at one another. And then you superimpose that map on any of the shots that you see and nothing lines up. There's just people are, it's just like, let's find a cool place in Dubrovnik where we can shoot some people shooting and then we'll find another cool place. That's so representative of, I think, the quality of the film in general. Like the, the mission is something I had to rewind three times to understand <laughs> what the point was even because this is about micro battles and not. And not the war, really. The the big the big battle scene at the end where the partisans all come up out of the thing and they run down the hill and the Germans are shooting. What those felt like were um, situations where Corman just had access to a thousand guys. It was very exciting when those guys like I saw that wall and I was like, boy, it won't it be satisfying if a thousand guys just pop their heads up and start shooting back at the Nazis. And uh, I was not disappointed. <laughs> One thing I did not really feel like I got was the we all need to know exactly what one second is thing. There's a whole thing about we're all going to get super good at counting super accurately, but down to the second. If you look at the Dirty Dozen by contrast, like we know the plan, like the back of our hands by the time they're doing the plan. And then when it starts to go off the rails or when they like execute something perfectly, like it's interesting because we know what the stakes are and the the we're, we're all super good at counting thing in this movie. I don't feel like was as well elucidated. Wait a minute, Ben, by the 15th time that we were given a scene where everybody, uh, but especially Roca, really drilling that like snap, that beatnik snap. Yeah. And everybody's snapping all the time and tapping their hands on their legs. And he gives that long speech like, you got to get down to the second. And we're snapping and we're snapping. And I remember- just be in your bones. <laughs> I, remember, I remember at the point at which I said, okay, this is, this is tired now. Will you, will you please employ this snap? Because I'm tired of these guys snapping. Like, employ it. And then the whole end of the movie happens and I forgot, I forgot to watch for that, for the snapping and it never plays into any scene, does it? There's like one moment where they like meet the Henry Silva character in the 
in the hallway after he's killed the the german commandant or whatever and it like it seems like they meet up right at the same moment but i don't know why that was important that they meet up at the same moment like why they couldn't stand there for 30 seconds to wait for him to do the murder but how did the snap fall into that even i mean i was i was waiting for him to say like okay 30 snaps from now we all step out of a doorway or two lines of dialogue like that would have made a huge difference in how that worked there's going to be a really complicated moment where everybody has to stand on their tiptoes at the same and it and it wasn't it was just like we're going to take the potato document we're going to give it to the man <laughs> he's going to give us the golden ann and we're going to take it to stan like we, we never even saw that bit strange but it, it's interesting that like the mechanics of this movie have so much in common with dirty dozen also like the there's speculation that the dirty dozen came out a year after it was originally meant to like they they held off on producing it for a year because of this movie and they didn't they didn't want to uh be accused of being you know the deep impact to its armageddon or whatever but corman made 400 movies like there is no plot he didn't make a movie of right i mean he made a movie where right. a, where a insect girl married married a garbage can lid boy how the hell did he not come up with ragtag fugitive fleet it's a bit of a The Simpsons did it problem for all of their filmmakers. <laughs> Another thing I read about this is that when they released this movie, like I think it had a $600,000 budget and uh, they think made it about $3 million at the box office, which was kind of like Corman made a ton of movies because he knew how to make a movie profitable no matter what the budget was. And uh, apparently United Artists tried to get a little funny with the money and said like, Oh yeah. Uh, unfortunately the film did not break even and Corman threatened to bring auditors to look at their books. And they were like, well, what if we give you $400,000 to not do that? And, uh, and he accepted the payoff and also vowed never to work with them again. Good job by him. Listen, I will accept $400,000 to not tell people how fucked up you guys are. <laughs> if only I had that. <laughs> I said no more. This team was put together by a British officer for supposedly working on behalf of the British government, but none of the characters are British. It, it, it doesn't seem like it's a coordinated effort on the part of anybody. We never... We never see anybody back at headquarters. Nobody right. opens a, a like a sealed envelope full of the plans. It really do, it really does feel like like this one British officer who was relieved of command and kind of disgraced, Major Mace, somehow got this team assembled from around the world with no oversight, <laughs> working on behalf of no one in particular. There are two steely-faced, like, Pinkerton-looking guys to bring each one of them to Cairo. Oh, right. They're all wearing matching sunglasses. Ray-Ban squad. I'd want to see some really convincing paperwork to my pardon at the end of this if I was one of these guys, because <laughs> it all seems very shady. Also, I have, to, I have to comment on the fact that both Ed Burns and William Campbell... They have such early 60s haircuts. 
like brill creamed, <laughs> like doo wop. Yeah. The women have really 60s hair as well. It really threw me off the first 20 minutes of this movie because I was like, why? If you're going to set a movie in 1943, come on, get get the haircuts and sunglasses, right? That's not that hard. You can't just throw it's well, it's kind of like it's kind of like putting Donald Sutherland in a war movie where he's like, cool, daddy. Oh, slap it to do and smack it a pow. Let's go oh. fight some groovy Nazis. No, lame. This film gives a lot of time to Major Mace's eventual death. His injury is fatal once he removes the tourniquet. Yeah, they hit him right in the red paint can. Yeah. <laughs> and then he takes a long-ass walk next to a river, uh, leading the dogs away from the rest of the team. I think you guys bring up a really interesting question about the character, like how how connected he is or isn't to his own military and how related to that this this side mission is. He almost felt like like the movie felt like the A team, but that character felt like the Robert Vaughn character in the A team, like the the puppet master, a guy who's who's only quasi connected to the larger story. I'm afraid that you you two guys are gonna have to fill me in on the like intricacies of the a team backstory because that's you never watch the a team that shocks me you know what a war movie is the a team movie there's a movie (laughs) let's watch the a team movie for a pork chopper that's for sure a pork chop film that's a lot of fun from before the tv show or after 10 years ago i think doesn't have bradley cooper in it 2010 it's a joe carnahan film so you know no way the action is gonna be top shelf (laughs) <laughs> uh, but it's Liam Neeson, Bradley Cooper, Jessica Biel, and uh, a host of others. Sorry, boys, gotta run. Can't finish the movie. Do let me know how it ends. Sometimes we do that thing on Friendly Fire where we're like, you know, I could have used another 10 minutes of this or like a little more backstory there. But I'm not hearing a ton of that for The Secret Invasion. No, I mean, I think that there there are things that I wish they had explained at all and ideas that had been executed a little bit more cohesively but i think that this movie does like you're right like the pace is bracing and every time you think that they have three days they really have six hours and you're never bored like there's a long sequence in the middle of this film where they're just in a cell together and all of the action is taking place off screen. It's like a guy gets taken away to be tortured. They're learning how to count. They're like talking about what the next step is. It's an absurdly long set piece to basically like walk away from all the action and beautiful vistas of Dubrovnik that this film has offered so far. But even that moves really quickly and is interesting and engaging, you know? Yeah. They do spend a long time digging that tunnel in the graveyard yeah where it feels like if we are if we're really in a big hurry if we've if if the clock is ticking down um it seems like we're working in shifts here to dig a big hole uh and i was never clear of the geography of that either like there we talked a lot in the movie and even went on a surveying mission to look at the tunnel under the city that was part of the ancient roman sewer uh then it seemed like, are we digging in the graveyard to get down to the tunnel of sewers that we looked at from the ocean? Couldn't we have gone in 
through the ocean side. And then what happens if you fall through the hole into the sewer? And I never understood like what the mission was. Uh, and that felt like time was suspended with the, like within movie time because yeah. all of that, like, okay, you know, it's your shift is over. Go back to the hotel. People are coming and going all the time. Um, apparently a couple of German troops kept their bottle of Slivovitz, like leaning against the very <laughs> tomb that, that our squad has been going in and out of for what seems like a week to 10 days. That plan needed one more elucidation, I think. One of the details of that tunnel digging that I really enjoyed uh, that I don't remember ever seeing before was the idea of of a fresh skull, a skull that actually like had some some muck on it. I don't know who it was that, that pops up out of the grave. I can't remember who it was, but but he is horrified by the idea that, that this is a fresh grave that they're digging through and he just can't take it. Yeah, Ugh. that was the William Campbell moment. That was his big moment to say, I'm out. Yeah, I didn't know there would be freshies down here. <laughs> I mean, like that just by itself is its own like Roger Corman film premise, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> well, uh, I really enjoyed talking about the secret invasion with you guys, but uh, it isn't an official friendly fire episode until we rate and review the movie using a rating system dug up in the film we've just talked about. Uh, it's not going to be wet skulls though. <laughs> that is too gross. Not going to be that. I wanted to choose a rating system that was related somehow to the idea of putting a, a new spin on an old favorite like this this genre is is not anything that's new to the assembled hosts of friendly fire the idea of assembly assembling a flawed group of people to go out on a suicide mission like an actual suicide mission is what the guy calls it <laughs> and and you know when when the film starts out you think you know, what are the chances that there's going to be anything new to this story? There's no meat on this bone. There's no meat on this skull, even. Like, how could this film be distinguished from all of the others of its kind? And I think the film makes a strong case for itself and its existence in a couple of ways. Like, these are not new ideas, but the way that they are presented feel new and fresh to me. One of the ways... Early on that we experienced this, I think, Ben, you were referring to it. When they board that German patrol boat, they're throwing the grappling hooks up. The last, the very last thing I expected was a grappling hook going through someone's cheek. <laughs> I could have written a list of 40 things. Like, what are, how do you get on the boat? What do you use? What happens when you try? Grappling hook through the cheek, not on my radar. And as soon as that happened... I, I was brought to attention, like expect an unexpected twist on this old favorite story. And it's going to be one to five grappling hooks for me because it really sets the tone, <laughs> sets the tone for the whole thing. Can you get on board this movie using a grappling hook? I think so. I love its pace. It's a pace that is almost self-aware about like, I'm not going to give you any time to think about what major problems there could be in the plan or what details you aren't super clear about. I don't care. We're, we're just going to pedal to the floor of this thing all the way to the end. 
And I respect the idea of like one of the things I read about Roger Corman was was like he's very poppy, right? Like you go in there, you 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 put in your ninety minutes in a movie theater, you're gonna expect something fun and interesting, and then you're out. You're out to enjoy the rest of your day. And I in a war film environment where often we are asked to sit and endure a two and a half hour or a three hour film, I respect Roger Corman. I, I'm grateful to Roger Corman for respecting my time, you know? <laughs> I love that the problems and the solutions come together so fast. Uh, I I wish I had seen more Roger Corman movies up until now. I know it's something I'm going to make more of a point of uh, in the future. This film was a lot of fun. You don't often get fun in a war film the way that you get it here. I want to believe that it was fun to make a film like this, too. This feels like the sort of fun that that shines through its production. I don't know. It was it was a great introduction to Roger Corman and a bunch of actors that I look forward to enjoying the careers of down the road. I'm going to give it a solid four grappling hooks. That is a good score. And yeah, I think that... I was expecting this movie to just kind of like come off the rails and fall apart and be unsatisfying. And you're right. Like it does re-surprise at every turn. And that is to its credit. Like there are a lot of ideas in this movie and some of them work and some of them don't. And the movie forgets about some of them and never comes back. But yeah, like it's a, it's kind of a perfect friendly fire movie in a lot of ways. It's just like a, like put the team together, go do a crazy mission and, uh, and, and all the twists and turns that that entails, uh, were exciting and fun. And it's like, you're definitely not going to like walk away from this with like a better insight into what World War II was about or like why the, British military would get a bunch of international criminals to aid in their, uh, you know, turning the Italians against the Germans in the Balkans, per se. <laughs> like, all of that is very hand wavy and like, who gives a shit? But it's like, it like, I think the story behind it is he literally came up with the idea to do a movie in Dubrovnik because he was reading an article about how great Dubrovnik was uh, while he was like at the dentist getting a tooth drilled. It's kind of the Adam Sandler effect. Like, where, where would it be nice to go spend a month making a movie? Dubrovnik? Cool, let's go do it. And, you know, in Adam Sandler's case, there are mixed results with, with that formula. But in this case, I think they came, came home with something really fun. So, four hooks to the face. Wow. Oh! <laughs> ah, boy, my squeaky chair is going to get a workout. <laughs> at, at one level... This is a this is uh, a textbook friendly fire movie. It's got all the elements. It's got the it's got the the file reading. It's got the the team put together out of a out of a mash of people. It's got the hard to parse suicide mission. It's got a lot of uh, set pieces. It's got a lot of red paint, um, but. This is an awful movie. Oh no! <laughs> From the beginning to the end, a an absolute travesty. I watched this movie, wondering if if I could invent a new rating scale for it, a rating scale that was four dimensional, 
that that also involved like on a time scale giving it a low rating um and and largely it is that this was this movie felt like it was written on a napkin and written on a napkin by by people who aren't writers who were given a reprieve of their death sentences if they could write a script in an hour and then directed by those same people. Like I could not find a thing in this movie that had not been done so much better elsewhere in other lame B movies. Like that's the thing. The things that were done in this movie were done better elsewhere. And those movies are bad. Anyway, this was a slog. You know, when I used to play with my Guns of Navarone toy set, I had more interesting plots than this. So I am going to give this movie one grappling hook. Ouch. Oof. Wow. Well, it was a brutal review, but did you have a brutal guy, John? Uh, my brutal guy was a gal. She does not appear in the credits very prominently, but she plays a pretty key role in the film. She's the girl that takes Mickey Rooney into the town by pretending that he's drunk and she's slapping his face. Is this Stefania? Stefana had that je ne sais quoi. And all I really want is the movie to be about Stefana. It turned out that Stefana was played by Nan Morris. Nan Morris, who has no other film credits on uh, IMDb. Her primary credit on IMDb is that she's been married to Gene Corman since 1955. <laughs> but how how could someone with as much screen presence as much just like natural charisma as Nan Morris have this be her only film credit and have this film neglect her so badly so she's my guy good guy did you have a guy Adam I think from jump if if it's not Raph Valone who catches your eye in every scene it's Simon Fell. He has these like piercing blue eyes and his like he seems to be the one that is maybe taking this the least serious throughout. He's always wanting to escape. The thing that endeared me to him immediately might have been more of a uh, a visual joke than it was uh, a character moment. But when he gets into the boat to escape and he's rowing and rowing and rowing and the fog breaks and you see him row right into the hull of that German <laughs> patrol boat. <laughs> That's pretty The good. reaction that he has and then when he's dragged up, like he never gets serious in a way you expect. He's always experiencing his circumstances from a kind of, of comedic remove in a way that isn't like broad like Mickey Rooney does, but... I just liked his vibe throughout. Like he's he's got this like confident, semi-comedic David Bowie affect to him throughout, and I just like I I dug him as as a guy in this movie. So I'm gonna make uh, and also like the way he goes out. <laughs> I'm I'm always gonna respect catching a grenade and going off a cliff. <laughs> uh, he he am become uh, Bob Half so. He's my guy. Simon fell indeed. <laughs> half of him fell. <laughs> the, the other half was 
was turned into a mist and sprayed yeah. on, on the cliff. I think actually the guy that blew him, that caught the grenade and blew himself up was William Campbell as Jean Saval. And that Simon really? Fell, Simon Fell took a bunch of machine gun bullets. Man, Sorry. I really tried to get that straight. Shoot. Sorry. All right. Well, everything that I, everything in the first part happened to Fell. Yep. So. Yep. It's true. There we go. Plus, I, I got that great Simon Fell indeed joke. That was a great joke. Yeah. God, you want to keep that. I didn't want to knock it out of there, but I also, you know. This podcast prides itself on its accuracy. We also want to not connote any sort of stolen half Bob Valor. Right. It does not exist. So, you know what? Maybe our challenge coin should be half challenge coin. (laughs) (laughs) And it floats. Yeah. It floats for some reason. My guy is, uh, I don't know if we know his name or not. Um, it seemed to me that basically everyone in this movie that didn't have a speaking part was just a local from Yugoslavia who was either in the military or somebody that just grabbed off the street because there are an awful lot of like SS officers walking around that don't, don't look like they are from, uh, <laughs> from Northern Europe at all. And my guy is, is one is one such character. He's the uh, kind of the aide de camp to the commandant of the fortress. Mm-hmm. And he, he keeps coming in and it just kept distracting me. And I couldn't figure out why until I realized he looked like Yugoslavian Ted Danson. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and, and once I realized he was Yugoslavian Ted Danson, he was like my favorite character to see come back into another scene. So um, for that reason, he was my guy. Uh, maybe we'll do something better for you next week, John. What do you say uh, you grab that die and give it a roll and tell us what it's going to be? Let me get that die going. Here we go. Get that last bit of coffee out of here. Okay. The die in the cup. I got a, I got a Father's Day cup from my daughter. It says, world's best farter. <laughs> I mean, father. <laughs> wow she's so proud of it and <laughs> one of the things that i taught her when she was when she got old enough to do things was i taught her how to get me a cup of coffee so that i could say mm. hey sweet you know like like in the 70s when dads would say <laughs> run to the store and get me a pack of cigarettes <laughs> i don't have that option but i can definitely say will you go get me a cup of coffee and she for the most part still thinks that it's a fun mission but she loves bringing it to me in the world's best farter cup. I mean, father. Okay, here comes the dice. Twenty-six. Twenty-six. Uh, we are staying in World War II, but heading over to India. This is a 1980 film directed by Andrew V. McLaughlin. It's called The Sea Wolves. Hmm. Right on. It appears to star Gregory Peck and Roger Moore and David Niven. Oh, yeah. What? Fun times. We're going to get the return of Ben's great Gregory Peck impression. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm hoping for. This movie would have been right in the 
sweet spot of me going to World War II movies with my dad. I wonder if I saw it and I just don't remember it. I love David Niven. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. Good cast. Well, uh, I'm really looking forward to that little little delight. Uh, but uh, but we gotta we gotta go for now, right? We gotta give these people a week off. So uh, we're gonna leave it with Robs, and for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. If you're looking for more Friendly Fire, last year we reviewed a film from 2015 called Eye in the Sky. Starring Alan Rickman, Helen Mirren, and Aaron Paul, this film deals with the ethical dilemmas that come along with drone warfare. And if you feel like supporting our show, head to MaximumFun.org join. And for as little as $5 a month, you're going to gain access to all of our bonus pork chop episodes, as well as all of the Maximum Fun bonus content. Don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. Roger Corman, as of this recording, is still alive. He's like wow. 94 years old. No shit. I bet he's a big fan of our show. Hey, Roger. Hey, Roger. Hey, Raj. You know how 94-year-olds are always super up on the latest podcasts. Oh, yeah. Well, I was just yelling at him over on Facebook because he said something <laughs> stupid. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.